Well, again, good morning and welcome to Grumlaw. We really are genuinely happy that you are here with us today, particularly if this is your first time, because as Melissa said, we totally get that. Even as adults, it's pretty nerve-wracking walking into a new place, and so we certainly don't take that for granted. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we are continuing uh, in this series right now, uh, as you probably already figured out, called Pray. Uh, in fact, today we are entering into part five of six, so the end is officially near. And if you haven't been here for every single week of this series, you can always go to grumlaw.com slash messages and get yourself caught up there. You get to listen or watch the messages. I recommend watching it. You get a little bit more of me in your life. That's a joke. Uh, but you really can't do that. Uh, anyway, but you can also find us at a Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast as well and catch yourself up there. Now, a couple thousand years ago, uh, there's a particular event that we've been taking a look at throughout this series. Uh, it's actually recorded for us in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, uh, which is kind of the second half of the Bible. Matthew is one of the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that record Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And here in the book of Matthew, we have this particular event where Jesus is approached by his 12 disciples, and they very just candidly ask him, they say, hey, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus sits them all down, and he says, hey, this is how you're supposed to do it. This is how you're supposed to pray which I think is a really, really good thing for all of us because no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, I'm confident that from time to time we have all wondered, am I doing this right? How do I know that the way that I'm praying is, is like the right way to be praying? How do I know that there's actually somebody out there who's listening? How do I know that I'm not just kind of mumbling to myself? And what we've discovered over the first four weeks is that Jesus' intention when he said, hey, this is how you're supposed to pray, it was never to give us the exact words. His intention was never to say, hey, these are the exact words that you have to pray, be ready to repeat these at the pastor's or the priest's command. No, 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 no. It's so much simpler than that. Jesus said, pray like this. Because he gave us a model, he gave us a framework on how we are supposed to pray. And so if you haven't been here for every single week of this series, again, I can't stress enough, go back, catch yourself up, and that's not because like, I think I'm this incredible communicator, but it's because prayer is really, really important. And in this model, we kind of see how one week builds off of the last. But just in case you haven't been here for every single week, I'm gonna kind of give you a quick recap here and, and bail you out. In part one, we talked about where. Where you pray matters. Where you pray matters. That it's okay if you have those kind of those quick 30-second prayers that more adequately fit into your schedule, but if that's what constitutes your entire prayer life, God says, Jesus says, you're missing it. I'm telling you, you need to get alone, eliminate distractions, and actually spend quality time talking to me. In part two, we talked about this idea that before you ask him, adore him. So often, it's really, really easy when we go to pray and we just kind of lay out all the things that we want and all the things that we need in front of God, and that's okay. He's like, listen, I promise we're going to get to that part, but before we get there, why don't you take a minute to praise me? to thank me, to recognize how truly holy and set apart that I am. And then in part three, we talked about the four hardest words that any person could possibly ever pray. Your will be done. God, I want what you want more than what I want which we all know is, is a lot easier said than done. But the reason that we would do that, the reason that we would give the keys to God and actually give him the control is because believe it or not, he actually wants what is best for you. He has absolutely your best interest in mind. And we talked about that week, but come on, we need to be honest with each other. We need to be honest with ourselves. We don't always have our own best interest in mind. You don't always know what is best for you. In fact, we all frequently make decisions where almost immediately after making that decision, we go, what was I thinking? 
Why did I call him? Why did I call her? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And God says, okay, with that in mind, why not give me a shot? Because I am promised that I am so for you. And if you ever doubt that, remember, I sent my one and my only son to die for you. God, your will be done. And then last week, we talked about the part of prayer that, let's be honest, probably comes most natural to all of us. This is the part where we get to, hey, ask him for all the things that are on our hearts. Lay out in front of him all those things that we need help with, all those things that we need, all those things that we want. But God reminds us, Jesus reminds us, he says, hey, remember, before you get to that part where you get to unload all that stuff that you know, you're kind of weighing on and it's heavy on your heart right now, remember, you just prayed, your will be done. And when we actually believe that, when we actually pray that, chances are the what, the things that we're actually praying for are drastically, are going to drastically change. Now, I've said this every single week during the series, and I'm going to continually providing this explanation because it's really, really, really important. The reason that we're doing this, the, the reason that we would spend six straight weeks talking about prayer is because if you're a Jesus follower, if you call yourself a Christian and you're not spending quality time just talking to God, you're not getting alone, eliminating distractions and spend quality, quality time actually interacting with him, your relationship is being cut short. It's never going to become what God wants it to become if you just have these quick 20-second prayers before meals and kind of when it's convenient for you. He says you're missing the mark. You're chopping that relationship off at the knees from day one. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, you're sitting here today, maybe somebody bribed you into showing up. Again, maybe you're like bribed, you know, somebody's like, hey, listen, you come to church with me and I'll buy you lunch. And you're like, all right, it can't be that bad. I'll give up an hour for a free lunch. Or, or maybe you are here and you're just kind of exploring, but you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing yet. You're not sure that Jesus was even a real guy. We still think it's worth considering how Jesus teaches us to pray. Because no matter who you are, we all have some preconceived notions about prayer. Now, some of those might be absolutely accurate, where others of them might be frankly wrong when we compare them with how Jesus teaches us to pray. And you owe it to yourself to make sure that you actually understand how to do this. Because if you ever decide to become a Jesus follower, and we really, really hope that you do that, the key to true intimacy with God, the key to actually having a relationship with God happens to lie in getting prayer right. Because most of us have never really considered that prayer might be something that we learn how to do. But fortunately for us, and this is an incredible thing about Jesus, he meets us right where we're at. And he's like, listen, hey, I know that you feel insecure, and I know that, that most of us would feel really awkward, maybe even embarrassed to approach another human being and say, hey, will you teach me how to pray? And so Jesus says, hey, okay, come on. Just come listen to me. You don't even have to look. You don't even have to ask another person. I'm gonna lay this out for you so clearly just in case you don't understand how. And so first, he dives into those first four sections that I just kind of ripped through here. And again, I'm gonna say it one more time. Go catch yourself up. Prayer is more important than any of us probably totally comprehend and understand. And then he moves on to this, this fifth part that we're gonna be diving into today. And this is where we're gonna kind of be camping out. He says, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Who wants to take a stab at, at what we're going to be talking about today? Just seriously, yell it out. What do you think we're going to be talking about today? Forgiveness. forgiveness. Look at that. You guys are brilliant, brilliant people. Now, forgiveness is a pretty popular subject. In fact, it, there have been so many sermons written on the topic of forgiveness. It might literally be the most popular subject among all sermons. We've seen many movies, you know, secular and Christian alike. We've seen a lot of movies written and talk about the topic of forgiveness. We've heard a lot of songs, right, that, that are written about the topic of forgiveness. It's not just a Christian thing. This is just a people thing. Forgiveness is a really, really popular subject in our society. In fact, the trajectory of so many of our lives, think about this, and this probably describes you, has been determined by our willingness to extend 
or perhaps withhold forgiveness. Relationships have been completely restored because of someone's willingness to extend forgiveness. And simultaneously, we've seen relationships completely ripped apart because of an unwillingness to extend forgiveness. In fact, this is kind of a crazy thought, but this is probably true for you. Your self-worth likely rests on your ability or inability to forgive yourself. So it shouldn't come maybe as too much of a surprise that Jesus would dedicate an entire section of his model for how to pray to forgiveness. And what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at a particular parable that Jesus tells a little bit later on in the book of Matthew. Uh, It's a pretty popular parable. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. You know, if you've been going to church your whole life, that probably rings a bell. Maybe, maybe not. Um, But what uh, he does here in the book of Matthew, uh, a little bit later here in the book of Matthew, what Jesus does through this parable is he introduces what forgiveness looks like in the kingdom of God. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The kingdom of God is kind of this terminology that we see thrown around all throughout scripture, so it's important that we actually have an understanding of what that means. We came up with this definition a couple weeks ago. Uh, It means, the kingdom of God means the society on earth where God's will is as perfectly done as it is in heaven. And Jesus is saying, hey, through this parable, you're going to get an idea of what, again, what forgiveness looks like in the kingdom of God, of what God's standard of forgiveness looks like. Now, just in case you don't know what a parable is, Jesus made these stories up. Parables were completely made up. They were made up fake stories to make a very, very clear point. In fact, that would actually be a pretty good definition of a parable. It's a fake, made-up story to make a very, very clear point. And this all starts out because Peter, one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' best friends approaches him and he asks him a pretty simple question, a question that I'm confident we have all wrestled with at a certain point, whether you've actually said it out loud or not. Peter approaches Jesus and he says this, Lord, how often, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? How often should I forgive someone who wrongs me, who offends me, who hurts me? And then he just kind of throws out a number. He's like, seven times? I mean, seven times, Jesus, does that sound like a pretty good number? Should I forgive somebody seven times? Now, back when Peter was asking this question a couple thousand years ago, this was actually a very, very common topic to discuss. This whole topic of forgiveness was actually frequently debated, particularly among religious leaders. They would sit around and, you know, they'd sit there and they'd debate, okay, how often, you know, forgiveness, how often should we do it? Who should we extend it to? And the religious leaders, keep in mind, back at this point in society, were some of the most powerful, well-thought-of people in, in, in the entire area. I mean, they were thought of so, so highly, a lot different than than they are today. Um, And one of the most commonly held beliefs a couple thousand years ago, again, when Jesus was originally talking to this audience, was the idea that you should forgive somebody three times. Three times. Three strikes and you're out. In fact, it's actually how we get our three-strike rule in baseball. That's made up. You're supposed to call me out on those kind of things. Just making sure you're paying attention here. That might be true. I actually have no idea. But anyway, it really was. This was a real idea. It was like you forgive somebody three times, but on the fourth time, sorry about you, I'm not forgiving you anymore. Which, let's be honest, that kind of sounds a little bit funny. This idea that you would somehow like keep track of how many times somebody has wronged you, that I would look at Ben and I'd be like, Ben, it's three times. Next time, we are done. We are not friends anymore. It's over. But again, from a human perspective, that actually sounds like a pretty reasonable thing, right? The idea that we would continue to forgive a person over and over and over again, that almost seems foolish, doesn't it? I mean, that, that, that almost seems reckless. If there's a person that's going to keep wronging you, keep hurting you, keep offending you, I mean, just to give them limit, a limitless number sounds ridiculous. So three actually sounds like a pretty reasonable number. And so as Peter is talking to Jesus here, he's actually figuring that Jesus is going to be a little bit impressed He's like, hey, Jesus, listen, everybody knows you only have to forgive people three times, but check me out. 
I just bumped it up to seven. Jesus, what you got to say now? And Jesus' response, like we see so often in the scripture, would have been a bit of a head scratcher. Jesus says, no, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. To which Peter would have been sitting there going, Jesus, that, that's just gonna be hard to keep track of. I mean, it's hard enough three times. I got my little log and I'm, I'm checking it here, but 70 times, that's 490 times. Jesus, just practically speaking, like, you know we don't have phones yet and stuff, right? No electronic device. Like, I'm gonna have to go through and just counting up the 490 times, that's gonna be a challenge. But right here, and, and this is so good, Jesus introduces his standard of forgiveness what forgiveness looks like in the kingdom of God. And it's a standard that he will continue to emphasize over and over and over again. And what we are reminded of here is something that, that gets continually revisited whenever Jesus would talk about this topic of forgiveness. And it's this, it's that our standard of forgiveness in no way resembles God's standard of forgiveness. From a human perspective, worlds apart. I mean, there are virtually no similarities. And it's for this reason that when Jesus would teach on this subject, when he demonstrated forgiveness, when he told these stories, these parables about forgiveness, people raised an eyebrow. People looked at him like he was an absolute fool because nothing, nothing about his standard of forgiveness makes sense in our minds. It goes against everything that comes natural to us. It feels completely arbitrary. But then, then, something happened. He gave his life to people who don't deserve his forgiveness. Jesus gave his life to me and you, people that do not deserve his forgiveness. See, when Jesus would say things like this, when he would talk about forgiveness in this way, people would roll their eyes. People would think, okay, Jesus, that's a cute little teaching, but that's not realistic. There's no possible way that you can actually live like that. When he said these things, people would think less of him because it seems so absurd. It seems so outlandish, but then he did something. He didn't just talk about it. Something happened. He gave his life to people who do not deserve his forgiveness. And in that moment, what he taught, the stories he told, all those things he said about forgiveness, they didn't seem so stupid. They didn't seem so absurd. They no longer seem so outlandish. You know, in this moment, Jesus is obviously not teaching and advocating the idea <laughs> that you would keep track of somebody's wrongs up to 490 times. He's actually being a bit of a smart aleck here. He's making fun of this commonly held principle that back at this point in history, people actually kept track they had like logs of like, okay, you are on your second time. You're on your first. You're on your third. He's telling Peter and he's telling us, don't keep track. Just as ridiculous as it would be to keep track of somebody offending you up to, to 490 times, it's equally absurd to keep track at all. But as Peter's listening to this, like maybe some of you are sitting here today, he's having a tough time understanding it. He's struggling with, okay, can this actually be the standard? I mean, is it possible to actually live like this? And at this point, Jesus, in his brilliance, sensing that this is a little bit difficult for us to wrap our heads around, he begins to tell this story, or as we often refer to them now, a parable. He says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. 
Now, this is a pretty familiar concept to all of us, right? We all understand the concept of owing somebody else money. In fact, that's kind of the American dream. Nothing says, hey, I'm an American, like owing somebody else a crap ton of money, right? <laughs> Credit card debt and school loans, you know, mortgages, you know, car loans, you get the idea. We, we all like, you know, we, we all know what that's like. I mean, that's the American way. And this is what Jesus would do. He'd start out with something really, really familiar. He'd get everybody on the exact same page, make sure there was kind of this common ground, and then he'd work backwards from there. He says, in the process... One of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions, millions of dollars. He could not pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. So this guy owes the king a lot, a lot of money. In fact, in modern terms, it would equate to roughly $20 million. And the king decides, okay, I, I need to start actually settling up some of these accounts because apparently things have gotten a little bit out of control and hence why somebody would owe him such an incredible sum of money. Now, I doubt any of us have ever owed anyone millions of dollars, at least I hope not. If so, let's, let's talk afterwards. We need to hash that out a little bit. But we are all familiar with the idea of debt accruing, right? Again, that we see this so much in our society. It's why we see so many advertisements, so many commercials about credit scores and getting debt collectors off your back and consolidating debt. Again, it's just kind of built into our American society. What's maybe not as familiar is the idea that if you didn't pay back your debt, you'd have to hand over your wife, children, and everything that you owned, okay? Although maybe not the worst idea. Some of you might think twice about racking up credit card debt if your spouse and kids were on the line. But anyway, that's kind of beside the point. But believe it or not, this was actually a pretty common practice back at this point in society. One way or another, if you had debt, they were going to get your money. Even if it wasn't in monetary form, they'll take your kids, they'll take your wife. But the man fell down before his master and he begged him, please, please, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt I mean, this is incredible, right? Just moments earlier, this guy literally owed $20 million. It was a sum of money that no matter how hard he worked for the rest of his life, he would have never been able to pay it back. And the king doesn't look at him and just give him an extension. He says, listen, it's all forgiven. You don't owe me a nickel anymore. Can you imagine the weight that must have been lifted off this dude's shoulders? Can you imagine the feeling as he walked out of that palace and was like, I owe nothing? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Imagine if you left church today. You walk out in the parking lot and there's some dude like, that looks like he just has a lot of money, like he's driving a Maserati and he comes up and you've never met him before, but he knows your name. And he's like, hey, and he says your name. And you're like, oh, do I know you? And he's like, no, you don't know me, but I just wanna let you know, I just paid off your house, all your cars, all your credit card debt, all your school loans. You don't owe a nickel to anyone ever again. You're done, you're debt free. Can you imagine the feeling if that happened to you today? Some of you are smiling, literally. You have smiles on your face just thinking about it. For some of you, if you had one wish, that would be the wish, to have all of your debt paid off. And so if this is how the story ended, it would be a great little story, a great little parable on mercy, on pity, on forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, but when the man left the king, the guy that just had millions forgiven, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand bucks. And he grabbed him by the throat and he demanded instant payment. What? I mean, if you're actually paying attention, it's hard not to read a story like this and get a little bit defensive. I mean, this guy just literally had millions of dollars forgiven and now here he is. He has his hands around another person's throat demanding payment for a couple thousand bucks. This is ungratefulness at its highest level. How quick was this guy to forget what just happened to him? And as Jesus told this story, 
As he told this to his original audience, he's trying to get the sort of response from his listeners. In fact, he anticipated it. He knew that this would get us ticked off. He knew that we would get defensive as we read this. Jesus knew that in this moment, we would demand justice, that we would want something, that we would want this man to be punished. We would think, okay, come on, how is this happening? His fellow servant fell down before him and he begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. He does the exact same thing that that guy just did to the king. And so you would expect maybe a similar response. Finally, you know, light bulb will click on the head like, oh my gosh, I'm choking this guy. Like, this literally just happened to me. Like, surely, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna forgive you too, but no, not so much. His creditor wouldn't wait. And he had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. How could someone be so quick to forget the kindness that was just bestowed upon them? How could it be so blind to the hypocrisy that he is displaying in his life right now? And justice, that thing that, let's be honest, every single one of us, we want in this moment, we're like, okay, we want something to happen to this guy. He better get caught. It does indeed come. Continues there. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. And then here's the million dollar question that we all got to wrestle with. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? To which we all think, bingo, right? That, that's what I'm talking about, right? Like we're, we're glad that he got caught, but let's be honest, getting caught ain't enough. We're reading this like, okay, he better not just get a talking to. We want him to get like a thumping to. We want him to like be in trouble for doing this thing, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it's okay that you got caught, but, but the king better punish him. We want justice. And in fact, justice does come. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Yeah, that's what we're talking about, right? Never mind, there might be a slight flaw in the system. We don't know how he's going to pay back his debt if he's rotten in prison, but we're okay with that because justice has been served. This guy is getting what he deserves. And if this is how the parable ended, I think most of us would be okay with that. It'd be a great little lesson on the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But remember, Jesus is teaching about forgiveness. And this whole conversation got started because Peter inquired about the frequency with which we should extend forgiveness to other people people. And so Jesus isn't a dummy. He circles back to the original question and he wraps up this whole story with a single incredibly blunt statement. He says that, that is what my heavenly father, that's what God will do to you. And he's talking to all of us, like me and you. So that's what God will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and your sisters from your heart. And with that, the air pretty much just goes out of the room. Because we read a statement like that, we, we, we read something like that that came straight from the lips of Jesus and, and we're officially out of the parable at this point. This is just Jesus making a flat out statement and, and we read it again. Like seriously, read it again right now. And we think, does that really mean what it seems like it means? Because if that's the case, then who? That, that kind of like puts a shock to your system, right? 
And if you read that, 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 that line from the model that, that Jesus gives us on prayer that we're examining today, and forgive us our sins as we, right? Like, like there's kind of a cause and effect relationship going on here. Forgive us our sins as we, Jesus is making an assumption, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. It's impossible to deny, again, the cause and the effect that we see here, the assumption that Jesus is making as we. Don't expect forgiveness if you ain't, if you ain't extending it to other people. Don't keep coming to the well wanting grace and mercy and forgiveness if you are not going to extend that to others. That's what Jesus is saying. See, I, I can remember when I really first kind of started studying scripture in, in, in college and you know, really got into the word and I, I would come across really, really blunt statements like this where there really didn't seem to be a whole lot of room for inter interpretation, but I was just kind of hoping that it did mean something else. And, and, and I'd read it and I'd read it again. I'm like, gosh, that's... That's rough. And then I'd read a commentary and then, you know, I'd read the Greek and I'd read the Hebrew and, and wouldn't you know it, it, it meant exactly what it seemed like it meant. And then I'd just kind of sit there in a daze and go, I'm in trouble. And what Jesus is driving home here, what he wants all of us to be absolutely sure of that we don't miss is just as absurd as it would be for a man who literally just had millions of dollars of debt forgiven to then go around and begin choking out a man that owed him thousands, it's equally absurd for anyone on this planet to not forgive someone else. Regardless of if they hurt you once or a thousand times, in light of what Jesus has done for every single one of us, it is offensive for us to withhold forgiveness. When you really start to grasp what Jesus did for you, I mean like specifically you, how absurdly forgiving God is with us, how freely he hands out mercy, how freely he hands out forgiveness. I mean, have you ever taken a second to think about this? Can you imagine how royally screwed every single one of us would be if God held grudges? As Jesus asked there, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant? just as Jesus had mercy on you? Shouldn't you have mercy on your neighbor, just as Jesus had mercy on you? Shouldn't you have mercy on your ex, just as Jesus had mercy on you? Shouldn't you have mercy on that family member, on that in-law, on your spouse, on your kids, just as Jesus had mercy on you? You know, we read this, this parable this interaction between Jesus and Peter, and we think, okay, yeah, that's kind of like this nice little lesson on for forgiveness, but, but can you imagine Jesus in this moment? C can you imagine how maddening of a question this must have been? Jesus is about to go through one of the most painful deaths imaginable. He's about to take the, the, the weight of, of the world's sin on his shoulders, and he did nothing wrong. And Jesus, knowing that's coming, has Peter come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, you know, how many times should I forgive somebody that wrongs me? What? This is the guy that is about to be nailed to a cross. Nails driven through his wrists, nails driven through his ankles, beaten to a bloody pulp on the verge of death. And while he's on that cross, people are spitting on him. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. And what does he say in that moment? Father, forgive them for they know not what 
they do. If there was anyone in the history of the world who had every right to hold a grudge, this was it. But he doesn't. He forgives. In that moment, he forgives. And then we, as in every single one of us, including myself, have the audacity to hold grudges over some of the most petty junk imaginable. It should not matter what someone has done to you in light of what God has done for you. I promise you, it's petty. And oftentimes, we know this to be true, the person that we have the hardest time forgiving is the person that looks right back at you in the mirror. But here's the good news. You don't need to forgive yourself because yourself has already been forgiven. Jesus says, come on, I am not holding any of that against you anymore. I've already paid the price for your sins. I've already paid the price for your mistakes. I'm not gonna die on the cross for a second time. That's all in your past, so stop wallowing around in your own filth. Stop wallowing around in, in your past mistakes. Start living your life in such a way that this truth is reflected. When you think of how often God forgives us, how freely he hands out mercy to each and every single one of us, when you think of what Jesus did for every single one of us, for you specifically on that cross, how could we ever consider keeping track of the wrongs that someone has committed against us? Stop worrying about who says sorry first. Stop, stop sitting there and reflecting on the tone of their voice. Stop sitting there and having that internal debate of, okay, were, were they really sincere in their apology? Stop concerning yourself with whether or not they've done it before. Give me a break. And as Jesus so bluntly says in that final statement, if you are a Jesus follower, those of you that are not Christians, you're kind of let off the hook here, but if you are a Jesus follower, this isn't an option. It is a command. It's not a do this if you feel like it. He's like, no, this is how you are to live your life if you call yourself a follower of me. But as an added incentive, and, and this is one of the great things about being a Jesus follower, this isn't just some arbitrary thing that he asks us to do for the heck of it. No, no, no. God, Jesus, really wants what is best for you. He absolutely has your best interest in mind, and he knows what forgiveness leads to. And he knows what holding grudges leads to. See, God's standard of forgiveness isn't just different than our standard of forgiveness. It's better. It will make your life better. It's greater than our standard of forgiveness. Think about it. Has holding a grudge ever gotten you anywhere? I mean, that doesn't always lead to bitterness and pity and anger. Has it ever actually made your life better? Norman Peale, who's a famous minister and Christian author, he's credited with this quote, and it's brilliant. He says, resentment or grudges do no harm, no harm to the person against whom you hold these feelings. But every day and every night of your life, they are eating at you. See, see our standard of forgiveness, man's standard of forgiveness, it results in wars, broken marriages, lost friendships, divided families. It clears a path for jealousy, anger, resentment, loneliness, pity. It shatters relationships. And ironically enough, it points people in the complete opposite direction of Jesus. 
But God's standard of forgiveness, it leads to peace. It leads to healed marriages. It leads to stronger friendships. It leads to united families, less bickering, fewer quarrels, less arguing, healthy conversation, personal growth, emotional maturity. It clears a path for joy, purpose, happiness, satisfaction, selflessness, and points people to Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, find a place. Get alone, eliminate distractions. And before you jump into all that stuff that, that you are, like, want to tell me about, praise me, thank me. Then I want you to commit to my will, not yours. Then ask me, tell me all that stuff that, that you want, all that stuff you need, all that stuff that you need help with. And then after that, I want you to seek forgiveness and forgive others. You know, we, we just hit the, the forgive others part pretty hard, and that's oftentimes the more difficult side to this, which is why we spent so much time there. But as we wrap up this morning, I, I don't want us to forget that Jesus also says, forgive us our sins. Jesus is sure to stress the importance of seeking forgiveness as well. See, it, it's not enough for us to just see our sin. To recognize it. It's not enough for us to even be broken hearted by our sin. It's not enough that like at the end of the day, we're like, hey God, sorry about all that dumb stuff I did today. My bad. We good. We good. No, 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 no. When we come to grips with what Jesus did on that cross for every single one of us, he paid the penalty for our sin, for our mistakes, not his. When we recognize how our sin hurts God. Gosh, that was a seminal moment in my life when somebody sat me down and were like, do, do you recognize that when you sin, it, it breaks God's heart. It, it hurts his feelings. When we recognize that repentance, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying seeking forgiveness, repentance becomes a must. It's not an I have to, it's an I must because I see no other option. When we recognize how much God loves us, I mean, he loves you so much. We can't dare live with our sin. It becomes impossible to just sweep it under the rug and look at it casually because when we treat sin that way, and, and this is the crux of the matter, when we treat sin that way, it undermines everything that Jesus did for us on that cross. Seeking forgiveness does, does one of two things. Go ahead and put the next slide up. It acknowledges our need for a savior. When, when, when we go and we seek repentance, we, we, we seek forgiveness, it reminds us why we all need Jesus. It's a reminder that, oh yeah, I'm broken. I can't even do what I want to do. I constantly make decisions where right after making the decision, I go, what did I do that for? It reminds us of how desperately we need a savior, how much we need Jesus. And then two, it doesn't allow sin to become tolerable. It's one of the nasty, ugly things about sin. When sin's left in the dark, it grows. It becomes natural. It becomes normal. We justify it. We rationalize it. We normalize it. Admitting our sin reminds us that we are broken and we need Jesus. We need God to overcome that sin. So be specific. We talked about this last week when we go to God and, and we ask him for specific things, the importance of being specific in those times. In the same way, we are called to be specific when we acknowledge our sin. Tell them where you screwed up. It's not to wallow around in our past, but it helps us to not allow sin to become tolerable. It allows and it acknowledges our need for a savior. So be specific. Acknowledge specifically your wrongs. 
And then from there, Jesus says, now go and do that unto others as well, because I'm gonna give you forgiveness. I paid the penalty on the cross. Now you are called to go and do the same. His standard is so much greater. It's so much better than ours.